Welcome to episode number eight of Dogs in Our World. I'm Adam Winston. This episode is about dogs and art. Once again, I researched and I hustled until I could find the person who was considered the expert on the subject. Whether you're an artist, a historian, dog lover, or you're simply in the mood to learn something new, this episode is for you. Join the audience at dogsinourworld.com. From there, you can view pictures from each episode. Check out my services page to see how I could help you, your dog, or your organization. And finally, links to all of our social media pages can be found in the top right corner of dogsinourworld.com. All right, here we go. You are listening to Dogs in Our World, a show that explores the history, science, and importance of the domestic dog. Here's your host, Adam Winston. Back when I was planning this series, I knew that I wanted to learn more about the dogs in our world by exploring art and art history, which, by the way, I know very little about. And after a bit of research, there was one name that kept coming up and immediately I knew that, that this is who we needed to teach us about dogs and art. So unfortunately for him and his assistant, I just blasted him with phone calls and emails until I was able to get him on the show. And I mean, this is the guy who Oprah calls when she wants to, uh, to add a dog painting to her collection. Look, we don't even have time for me to recite the laundry list of his accomplishments and publications and clients. So I'm just going to let him introduce himself. Yeah, my name is William Secord, and I'm in New York, New York. My sort of claim to fame, I suppose, a long time ago was that I was the first director of the American Kennel Club Museum of the Dog. It's now in St. Louis. I was there for five or six years and then started my own business, but also wrote, wrote the first book on the history of dog painting, which came out in 1992. And since then, I've written four other books on dog painting. So it's really about being Dog Bill at this point. I'm the world's expert on 19th century dog paintings, and then I also have a, a gallery that's now open by uh, appointment only, which sells paintings of dogs and animals. Of course, there are depictions of dogs and artwork related to dogs that possibly date back thousands of years. But in this episode, we're going to learn about a time in history when people first began wanting to have pictures of their personal dog. This was before Instagram and even before the camera. Up until recently, we didn't think there were that many portraits of dogs per se in the 17th and 18th centuries. We thought of those centuries being more about portraits of people with a dog, Okay, if you follow me. But recent research has shown that at least during the Renaissance period in Italy, people commissioned portraits of their dogs alone without them. So that's where you see the really the beginning of the the evolution of, uh, of of dog painting, and then when you move into the on into the 18th century, you get people like George Stubbs, who was really well well known for his paintings of horses, but also did a tremendous number of dog paintings. Um, so George Stubbs in England, and then in, at the same time period in France, with the you know the King Louis the 14th and Louis the 15th having tremendous wealth and tremendous power kennels of two or three hundred dogs at any one time. 
they commissioned artists such as Jean-Baptiste Oudry and Alexandre-François Desportes to do portraits of the royal dogs. Unlike British paintings, the 18th century French paintings often had the names of the dogs in gold leaf actually on the canvas. So there's a very famous dog, a dog painting of Pompey and Florissant, which belonged to the king, and their, their names are actually inscribed in gold leaf on the canvas itself, which is sort of cool. So that, that's going on in the 18th century England, 18th century France, but the, the really tremendous number of dog paintings by a tremendous number of di different artists occurred between 1840 and 1940 in England. So think back to last episode when I took us to the sheepdog trial. I told you that those kinds of trials grew in popularity during the 1800s. Well, Mr. William Secord taught me that at the same time, there was also the rise of the middle class in England. And this rise of the middle class was a time of great wealth. And there was also an increase in the amount of leisure time that folks could enjoy. So this is when people began to increasingly take greater pride in their dogs. And what better way to memorialize them or for the people to show off their wealth than by commissioning a portrait of their prize pup. The evolution of purebred dog shows at the same time as field trials created this demand for depictions of, of dogs where, that actually conform to the standard for the breed. For instance, this, the standard being the written description of what a particular breed should look like. They tried to breed to that, make their dogs look like that. So there was tremendous pride of ownership, similar to you know, somebody having horse, uh, ra race horses. They wanted to have depictions of paintings of their race horses. The people wanted to have dog fanciers wanted to have paintings of their dogs. And in, in some cases had 20 or 30 paintings commissioned over the years of, of their particular breed or their top winning dogs, that kind of thing. Across the pond, as they say, here in America during the 1800s, paintings of dogs also became part of popular culture. And in America in the 19th century, it was more with sporting dogs than anything else, and pointers and setters and terriers to a less extent, mirroring or paralleling what was going on in England, but in, but its own, in its own particular way. And, and there are collectors that only want American paintings because they're you know, nationalistic or think that, that that fits in better with their American furniture or whatever. Um, but, but often people who have hunting lodges or, or, or that kind of thing will want to have pointers and setters, you know, paintings on the wall. One of the many things that William Secord has done for the art world and for the dogs in our world is he's helped us break down historic paintings of dogs into three to four basic categories. Here's one of the most helpful sound bites for me as I go back and look at all of the paintings that I researched for this episode. By the way, links to our research can be found in the show notes for this episode at dogsinourworld.com. Queen Victoria came to the throne in 1837, had a little tricolor King Charles Spaniel, and over the years had as many as 75 dogs in her kennels at Windsor Castle. So in a highly stratified society where everybody looked up to the queen as a sort of model of, of how they should behave or what they should do, the, the, the queen had all these dogs and other people wanted to emulate that. So they had dogs as well. And they weren't just one or two dogs. I mean, the early people that had dogs in the late 19th century had with, with great wealth would have hunt, hunting um, camps, if you will, in, in, in North Wales or wherever, where they would have tens of thousands of acres, where they had kennels with 200 dogs. I mean, it's, it's very different than what we think of today as somebody showing one or two dogs. And those three forces, the 
purebred and field trial, Queen Victoria, rise of the middle class, came together to create basically three types of dog painting, what I call sporting, purebred, and pet. You know, sporting is an obvious one, but, but I also include foxhounds in that. Mm-hmm. Sporting purebred, the purebred dog portrait, which is a very very classic type of four-on-the-floor dog face and to the left, head slightly turned towards the viewer sort of portrait. And then the pet portrait, which is what Queen Victoria had, which was, you know, King Charles Spaniels on a cushion whose only purpose was to please their master. So th- those three things evolved, and that's more or less how I, I organized the book. In addition to being chronological, I had little sections on Queen Victoria, little sections on field trials, little sections on the evolution of uh, purebred dog shows. So you're saying that if we go back and look at uh, works of art from the 18th, 19th century, that we can kind of tell a lot about the painting or, the, or what's going on and what the message is by looking at how the dog is postured or positioned? Yes. Interesting. Yes. So I've, this is the stuff I, I want think, to learn about now. This is great. I want to be able to... So if you can start looking at paintings of dogs from the 18th and 19th century, you can now ask yourself, could this be considered a sporting, purebred, or pet-related painting. There is a fourth category, or what some people could consider an exception to those three types. As well, and those are the ones that don't really fall into the sporting purebred and pet. Okay. And you you get this with Belgian and Dutch paintings, where they're they're what I call realistic paintings. Most for the mm. most part, with English and French paintings, the dogs are all cleaned up. They've had a bath. They've been groomed. They've been polished. They you know they they're looking as good as they possibly can. Whereas there are other artists in, in, in Holland and the Lowlands where painting uh, of dogs on the street, dogs that are emaciated, dogs that are, that are scratching around for a bone that look very, very sick. Or an, another one I'm thinking of is simply called the dog market where they, at, at the time in the late night, in sort of mid to late 19th century, dogs were sold on the streets. And there are okay. pictures of these dogs looking scruffy and uh, in, in need of a bath and in need of a good meal. Sort of a social social commentary on you know how they looked at dogs at the time. Fascinating, fascinating. Before we wrap up part one, I want to share with you what Mister Secord taught me about what dogs could symbolize in early paintings. Yeah, oftentimes the dogs were more meaningful or symbolic when they were included in paintings of people. For instance, you'd have a, um, a Venus, uh, you know, a, a nude woman lying down and the little spaniel by her side. The spaniel being awake or asleep meant one thing or the other. Um, oh, that's great because I know that I know that painting as I was researching this episode. So now I've got a better, I've got perspective. What else? Some of the dogs were known for the p- political ramifications. The, the, pu- mm-hmm. the pug, for instance, was always associated with William of Orange and, and, and the Dutch. Um, other dogs were, were associated more with, with, with diff- different countries or different political aspirations. Um, Hogarth, of course, had, had a pug, and there are, the, there are depictions of the, the pug with, the, with another dog urinating on it. I mean, there, you could just go on and on. <laughs> On and on, Hogarth used dogs in a similar way with his more realistic depictions of 18th century English life. All right, now that we've met our featured guest and set the scene for today's episode, 
We'll get ready for part two, where world-renowned expert Mr. William Secord will share with us some of the most valuable dog paintings and painters. He'll also provide a brief overview of the dog art market and explain why people continue to collect paintings of dogs. More dogs in our world right after this. Support Dogs in Our World by making a donation. This fun and informative show is free to the public, but it's not free to produce. Every dollar donated goes directly towards production expenses. Help Adam improve the lives of dogs and people through more episodes just like this one. Donate today at dogsinourworld.com. We'll be right back with more Dogs in Our World. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. You can also message us directly via the contact page at dogsinourworld.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome back to this episode where we learn more about dogs by exploring the world of art and history, specifically art from the 18th and 19th century. Now, one of the most iconic artists who was part of this massive burgeoning of dog paintings coming from England was a child prodigy named Sir Edwin Landseer. I learned that Landseer began drawing incredible images of animals at an age when most kids learned to write their names. As a teenager, he created rather accomplished etchings of dogs and other animals. Here's William Secord. And eventually, as his work developed, he came to the attention of the Queen, and and he became one of Queen Victoria's favorite artists, uh, starting as early as 1837, when the Queen's mother, the Duchess of Kent, commissioned Edwin Landseer to do a portrait of her little favorite dog named Dash, which is the the tricolor Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. Mm. And eventually, over the years, uh, Queen Victoria commissioned Landseer to do other portraits of her dogs as well. From from my point of view, the, the, the best and the most interesting one was was a portrait of Prince Albert's black greyhound, Eos. And it's a simple portrait of the dog, four on the floor, facing left, head slightly toward towards the viewer, but with all the trappings of royalty and, and great wealth around it, down to uh, a top hat, a pair of gloves, and a walking stick as if hmm. the dog is waiting for his master just to, to go out for a walk. I mean, it, it's the, technically the, the painting is brilliant and beautifully organized and symp- sympathetically rendered. Not to be too materialistic, but I, I wanted Mr. Secord to give me an idea of how much value some of these iconic painters and their paintings offer collectors. In terms of price, um, there was a very large painting by George Stubbs of a Newfoundland that sold relatively recently for about three million pounds, which is a lot for a dog painting. I'm not sure that any of Landseer's dog paintings have fetched that that kind of price, but certainly George Stubbs' horse paintings are expensive, routinely sell for you know more than a million dollars. So this one particular dog, monumental, almost life-size painting of the dog, sold for about three million pounds, the pound being roughly 1.3 to 1.4, depending on the day. I think it's really cool that the dog art market that was born from the rising middle class in England during the 19th century is alive and well today. 
popular paintings from that time are still clearly in demand if someone is willing to spend three million pounds, right? Here's Mr. Secord with some insight into the current dog art market and generously offering advice to any one of you who might even be interested in acquiring a dog painting. Interestingly enough, the market went through sort of it sort of peaked in 2007, 2008. Really? And then it's gone through adjustments since then. And what's happened is that the, 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 very, the very best quality has gone up in price, like Landseer, for instance. You know, it just keeps going on up and up. And then other ones that are unknown painters, what I would call more, more decorative things, have more or less stayed the same or gone down a little bit. As I've said from the very beginning, starting in this business 35 years ago, people ask me, what should I, what should I buy? Should I buy an etching? Should I buy a print? Should I buy a painting? I've got this much money. You know, should I buy an unsigned? I will say buy the best you can afford. Buy, buy the best that your, mo- that your money will buy. And you just won't, you won't get tired of it. And then if you do get tired of it, you can always trade it in. Because there's, a, there's always a market for the best of a particular artist's work. As usual, when someone starts talking to me about dogs and they get my wheels spinning, I get excited. And this is exactly why my show is edited, right? This is how I stay on track. Fortunately, William is a first-rate guest and educator, and he kept reining me back in, and I loved it. Well, let's back up a little bit. Sure, please do. Uh, Let's look at why people collect dog paintings at all. There's a certain group of people that have a King Charles Spaniel, for instance, and they want a King Charles Spaniel in their library. And that's the extent of it. They have contemporary art somewhere else, and they just want a little memento of, of their Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. Whereas the more serious breeders of purebred dogs want to have a historic rendition of their dog going back, or their breeds, certainly, going back as far as possible. I think of when I first went to the American Kennel Club Museum, there was a lady named Marie Moore from the Plains in Virginia. She What's had her name one more horses time? and dogs, and her Marie Moore, and she had a collection of, of horse paintings, dog paintings, and she gave the museum a collection of 300 paintings, works of art, sculptures, and decorative objects, all related to the old English Mastiff. Wow. So in a slightly sort of mind-boggling array, everything arrived at the dog museum at once, and we unpacked this sort of you know tre- this treasure trove. Her thing was she really wanted to see how the dogs had changed their appearance over that two or three centuries. Yes. So how it evolved in, into what she was breeding today, because the dogs have changed over the years. The most obvious example is the bulldog. The bulldog at, in the 18th and early 19th century was a tenacious, fierce fighting dog that was used. They were and the bulldogs were used to fight each other or to guide guard property. Um, and over the years, what happened was that what had been a tenacious, strong fighting animal was eventually in the show ring turned into a breed that couldn't even you know whelp or give birth on its own with this with huge heads mm-hmm. and. Um, bred more to the new standard for for dog fanciers rather than its old usefulness. And that's a wonderful example of how we can continue to learn about the dogs in our world by looking at art, you know, art through history. What are some yeah, of the bulldog is the, the bulldog's the most the bulldog is the most obvious example because you you can look at the paintings uh, I am in my I collect books. I've got about 2000 books on dogs. And the earliest one I have is between 1804 and 1805. And it's the first book that illustrates dogs, which names their breed. So there's a, there's a beautiful hand-colored plate 
called the bulldog. And you can see the way the bulldog looked in 1804 and 1805. And it looked very much more like today's boxer, you know, higher on legs, smaller head, that, that kind of thing. And then you, you look at, and there's a section in my first book on the, the history of the bulldog. And you go back from 1804, see what happened in the 19th century with the pure, with purebred dog fanciers, and then bring it up right to the present day, and you wouldn't even recognize the breed. It's changed. Man has changed the way that dog looks so much. They're relatively genetically malleable. You can change the way the dog looked looks rather over a very small number of generations of, of breeding. Right. You know, another dog breed I think that often comes up uh, when talking about this is the German Shepherd, too. In just a few decades, they've greatly changed the appearance of the German Shepherd, I think, most likely to its disadvantage. Yeah, they, there's a section in my first book um, on Geraldine Rockefeller Dodge, who I sort of call American royalty. And she had an estate in Morristown, New Jersey. She showed dogs. She was a dog show judge. One of the breeds she was best known for was the German Shepherd. And she, with Josephine Arzine, wrote, wrote a book on the German Shepherd. And she would import German Shepherd judges and breeders from Germany to come over and judge at her dog shows, which she sponsored. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy named Captain von Stefanitz, who was like the, the breeder of German Shepherds and the, the authority from Germany. And the dogs at that point in the 1920s through the 1940s had a top line that was almost level. You know, they did, mm-hmm. they did, and what, what's happened since then is that the dog is, the, the back legs are down on the hocks, the, the, the top line descends quickly towards the rear, and they look, they look very different. The German Shepherd people love them, but they don't really look like they could run or walk in a natural way, um, because they've, they've just, the breeders have changed the way they look over the years. You know, is, is this one of the main messages that you would like the, the listeners to kind of consider when they listen to this? You know what? What are some things that you really would like people to kind of think about when they are looking at the field that you've spent so much time in? I think the social history of the dog and art is, is interesting on, on one level, which is what we're talking about, the way the breeds have changed over the years, how people use the, the dogs in, in a different way today than they did before, how you, you're looking at different countries, for instance. There are 40 different breeds of French hounds in France that we, that we do not even recognize in America. And, and all of them actually, not only are they bred to conform to the standard for the breed, but they're bred for function. They're, they're all used and they're, and they're used in their original function that's, that, that, that they've been used for for, gener- for generations. I think I'm more, being from an art history background, I'm, my message is more one about the art rather than specifically about the dogs. And I would just encourage people to look at paintings from a quality point of view people ask me you know what about oh that's just a picture of a a a maltese or that's just a picture of a i don't know a a pekingese or or whatever what i do when i I look at dog paintings is 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 i look at the quality of the work i don't even look at who signed it and they're just like they're good bad and indifferent portraits by thomas gainsborough and sir joshua reynolds from the 18th century there are good bad and indifferent paintings of dogs and what i'm after is paintings of quality like Sredwin Landseer and other people in the 19th century, John Ems, John Sargent Noble, George Earl Maudrill, Arthur Wardle, that the, the, these things are, are fabulously painted. I mean, they're beautifully painted. They just happen to be of dogs. 
Coming up in the final part of this episode, Mr. William Secord will introduce us to some popular contemporary artists and trends. He and I will also talk about a prevalent theme that keeps popping up in nearly all of our episodes. And finally, he'll clue us in on the best galleries in the world where you can learn about the history of dogs by looking at art. Don't go anywhere. Adam will be right back with more Dogs in Our World. For more information about this show, visit the episodes page at dogsinourworld.com. And be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. The other thing we haven't spoken about is contemporary artists. That was my next question. Yeah, please do. Yeah. I've shown one artist, Christine Merrill, for over 27 years, and I've written a book about her. We, I interviewed 30 of her clients all around the country about why they commissioned her to do a painting of their dog or dogs. I mean, she has some clients that have five different paintings of their dogs that they've commissioned over, over the years. And the thing about Christine is not only does she capture the anatomy, structure, coat texture, the way the dog looks, she somehow captures the spirit of the dog, the individual character of the dog. Um, I can't tell you how many times people have, have commissioned portraits of their dog as gifts for their spouse, and the spouse comes down and just starts crying when they see the painting because it captures the painting itself, not a, not a photograph of the painting, not yeah. you know a, a digital image, but the actual painting itself captures somehow that individual character and, and nature of their pet. And she's done purebred dog portraits, but that's what she specializes in really, is really more pet portraits. And she gets the best paintings when she lives with the dog for a day or two, gets to know its character and its foibles and its, its facial expressions, and then does sketches and wor- works, up, works up a painting from there. Oprah Winfrey is a good client of, of ours with Christine's work, but also Pamela Dennis Hall, who's from Texas, who does very realistic portraits of ho- both horses and dogs, almost with a Victorian feeling to them. Um, and having horses and dogs herself, she has Cavalier King Charles Spaniels and Pugs. She's has, is very sympathetic to the more uh, the smaller, more toy, non-sporting mm. breeds. Yeah, that you know, this is one thing I've learned, and one thing I think that this show has definitely reinforced in my head is that every single dog is is unique, and it's fascinating to learn about the individual and unique relationships that you know people have with their dogs and so i want to see christine's paintings and pamela's so i can see how they may have captured you know the unique personalities of a dog and i can understand why uh, somebody would would find that so um, emotional after seeing something that was commissioned for them of their dog yeah, I think the more you, I think the more you know dogs, the more you re- realize that every dog is unique. And just because you're looking at a, a, an Airedale or have six Airedales together, they're, they're all they have a general, a particular strain or a tendency because they're Airedales. But then beyond that, they're their individual personalities and characteristics. What are some other, uh, are you seeing any trends um, in, in modern paintings or present day paintings? And do you see any trends going into the future? I mean, with regard to modern day paintings, that there, there is an, almost a resurgence of interest in portraits of dogs. Almost every week I get somebody who wants to 
you know, exhibit at my gallery in New York or, sh or sh show their work or want my opinion or, or this, this kind of thing. And the, um, there are some wonderful artists out there doing, you know, great, great paintings. Uh, a lot of them are just doing pastel head studies or whatever, but there's a whole school of, of artists that are using the dog not for its, the way it actually looks, but for its expressive value. So that if you think of, for instance, uh, a Doberman growling, they, they take that and paint a picture of a Doberman growling, but in an abstracted sort of expressionist way to reinforce the tension in, in, in the painting. In other words, it, it's not a portrait of a, a particular Doberman, but it's the Doberman used as symbolically to reflect everything we always have think, thought about, about Dobermans. I don't know if I'm expressing that very well, but oh, the yeah, um, yeah. so that there's a tremendous number of artists who do what I more abstracted images of dogs, not to capture the way the dog looked, but to express a certain emotion or feeling through their painting. One thing we've learned a lot about too in this show is just the uh, huge population, the growing population of dogs uh, in our world and especially America. And do you think that maybe this growing popularity and number of dogs is contributing to this kind of resurgence of, of dogs in art? I think increasingly people are looking at their dogs as members of the family. 30 or 40 years ago on a farm, you'd have dogs that were not even allowed inside the house. You know, they were functioning, working dogs, uh, and, or they stayed at, outside in the kennels. I think for most people who live certainly in cities, um, because of the, the confined space that they live in, the dog increasingly sleeps on the bed. You know, the, that the both the wife and the husband see a variety of emotions or feelings in, in, in their dogs and learn them their dogs' personalities and identify more with the dogs which I think you're more inclined to want, to want to have an image, whether it's photographs of your dogs or paintings of your dogs or sculptures of your dogs around, you know, to remind you of that particular love or affection you have for your pet. Don't forget, you can check out our research links at dogsinourworld.com in order to view pictures of many of the paintings we mentioned today. You can also view many of the paintings in Mr. Secord's collection by visiting his gallery's website, which is dogpainting.com. But clearly, clearly the best way to appreciate a painting is to see it in person. In America, the best places to see paintings, a couple of them are the Dog Museum, which is in St. Louis, Missouri. It's in the suburbs of St. Louis. Um, in New York, we've got the American Kennel Club has, has a splendid collection. In Middle, Middleburg, Virginia, uh, they've got a, uh, a great sporting art library and museum. But when you're traveling in Europe next, the two places to go to are the Kennel Club in London, the Kennel Club in London. They have a fantastic little gallery. They've got a great collection. And again, it's better to, to call and make an appointment. The other one is in Paris. It's the Museum of the Hunt and of Nature. And they have many of the paintings that were commissioned by Louis XIV and XV on display it's an, it's in a you know a beautiful uh, architecturally designed building from the 18th century and they've been brought in from all di all different museums to create these thematic shows um, of primarily french dog painting but whenever i go and look for dog paintings in europe or or elsewhere in america i always come back home and realize that i've got the best selection right here 
You could visit the William Secord Gallery in Manhattan by appointment. Since not all of his collection is housed at the gallery, Mr. Secord says you can call them in advance if there's something specific you want to see. He recommends browsing and purchasing his books on abe.com. That's A-B-E.com. But check this out. He says if you call the gallery in order to purchase a book, he'll send you a personally signed copy. I've inscribed many, many books to people's dogs over the years. It's whatever they like. They're the client. And when you call, be sure to tell them that you heard this show. Their contact info is listed on dogpainting.com. That's their website, dogpainting.com. All right, don't forget to join the audience at dogsinourworld.com. Help more people discover this show by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If that's too much, then just help spread the word by telling two friends you think might be interested in this show. And be sure to tell them exactly how they can listen to us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you soon. Real quick, since you're still here, I want to share something that completely made my day recently. This is an email that was sent to me by a listener in Australia. That's right. I have a listener in Australia, and she writes this. Thanks for your informative and interesting podcasts. They have made me more aware of my relationship with my dog, Lewis. I am more present, more aware of how I communicate with my dog. I am slower when asking something of my dog and more aware of his communication with me. I love how much more I feel connected to Lewis. You know, that's it. That's all I needed to feel like all this work and time and sacrifice has actually been worth it. People are listening and they're learning with me as I seek to discover more about ourselves by looking to the dogs in our world. I also want to thank the very first listener to send me feedback via the contact page at dogsinourworld.com. DJ in Stockton, California wrote, just listened to the first episode, listening to the second as I type, great line. Well, then maybe you should get a dog. I just wanted to say thank you for what you're doing. Great podcast, informative, intelligent, and a touch of humor. Great show. Keep on doing what you do. Well, thank you, DJ. I'm telling you, it means it really means a lot. And like I said recently, it's weird sitting here by myself with a microphone wondering if anyone is actually listening. It means a lot when one of you chime in on our social media pages or send me a message via the contact page at dogsinourworld.com. One of the best ways to give me feedback while simultaneously supporting the show is to leave a review in iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. I know it sounds like I'm always hustling you. That's because I am, and that's because I'm on a mission, a mission that myself and others believe in, and I can't do it without you. So support this project by making a donation or by simply spreading the word. And most of all, thank you for listening. I'll talk to you soon.